Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're going back into one of our favorite topics, relatable villains, and today it's the Batman edition. We're talking about the Batman rogues gallery and how so many of them often wind up being villains we can deeply relate to. We're talking about the difference between a villain on a personal quest of vengeance versus one to fix society. We're talking about the way gender can play out in how different villains are portrayed. And we're going to talk about this uh, across the Batman spectrum, but with some re reference to uh, characters in the new movie, The Batman. Uh, we will be not going into too many details, but there will be some spoilers for The Batman. So if you've not had a chance to watch that, go ahead and uh, uh, take a pause. Um, but hopefully that will be out on digital soon. More people will get a chance to watch it. This is not going to be our full review of the movie, but we are going to touch on it a little bit. So just be aware of that. Um, either way, though, thank you so much for being a part of this, and we'll be right back. Right after this commercial break, we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. Uh, before we jump into our episode, I want to make a quick announcement. Uh, as you all know, I've been experimenting with different ways of, you know, just trying to help pay the bills that are uh, necessary to keep this going. Uh, in terms of website, podcasting stuff, you know, making sure I can put food on the table, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and I'm going to put pause on the Patreon for the moment. Uh, I think I never really got it off the ground, never really got a chance to kind of find the things that would help make it worth signing up for folks, which is totally fine. I'm glad we have your support in so many other ways. Uh, but so Patreon's going to be on hold. I'm going to put that a pause. So we'll stop charging those people who are signed up. Thank you so much for those of you who are. We will still be trying to get you the stuff that we uh, promised, of course. Uh, and we will be coming back to Patreon at some point. We're just going to take a break from that and kind of look into some other options of uh, giving you all the content you want and uh, helping us uh, keep the bills paid here. Uh, but today we are, as I said, got a really interesting topic that I'm excited about. And we're joined by returning guest Emily Kissel. Emily joined us a couple of months ago to talk about uh, her work as a teacher and how she uses comic books in the classroom. Uh, and Emily, as you and I were talking about how to get you on for something else, this idea of the relatable villain was something that uh, I think you brought up. What What is it about this topic that interests you? Uh, well, for one, it's wonderful to be back. Uh, I always love getting to go on other podcasts other than just uh, my partners and the one that I run. Uh, uh -huh. But I don't know. I've always just been a big fan of villains, even more so than heroes. In terms of, like, DC, that's really what draws me into anything that is DC content. Uh, it's mm -hmm. very rarely the heroes for them, but the villains and the way they do their villains is always so well done. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I think some of the Marvel stuff that I most love is the stuff that has the best villains. Black Panther with Killmonger, yeah. Daredevil with Luke Cage, I'm sorry, Daredevil with Kingpin, Kingpin. Yeah. Uh, Luke Cage with uh, Cottonmouth, Cottonmouth and uh, Mariah Dillard. Um, but yeah, overall, I think sometimes uh, the MCU does not quite have the same kind of villain cachet. Uh, and so I'm glad we're kind of focusing today a little bit more on DC and especially on Batman. What is it you think about a villain story that, that makes it so much more interesting to you? I think, at least for me, it's a lot more relatable um, than mm -hmm. just a hero story because I I don't know what it is exactly about it. I feel like with a lot of heroes, they tend to kind of just put them in the, like, you know, like the good old boys club. Like, you know, Superman comes from, you know, the humble's beginning of working on a farm and then turns into, like, Mr. Perfect later on. Right. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> that just does not... <laughs> does not appeal to me at all in any way but you know having a villain have to you know deal with some kind of mental illness or seeing some kind of injustice happen in the world and then want to do something generally at least a lot of really good vi villains that's a lot of their origin story is wanting to do something that's good and then going about it in the worst possible way <laughs> yeah I often find in some way, um, and I want to be very careful here. Please don't call the police on either one of us. <laughs> um, but in some ways, there could be something a little bit cathartic about some villain stories. You know, when it's like there are times where I see people doing harm in the world. And there's a part of me that's just like, I would just love to just like, you know, do something terrible. And like, I'm not going to do that. I know it's not right. But, you know, when you get to see 
poison ivy, you know, grinding up, um, you know, CEOs of environmentally unfriendly businesses to to feed back to the planet as fertilizer, you're kind of like, yeah, go you. Yeah. I, I mean, of course, of course, officer, I would never support that kind of behavior. But like, still, there's there's a little bit of a catharsis there, you know, of a like, it's the it's the kind of stuff that we would daydream about, never actually want to do because it's wrong. But yeah. but damn, it would feel so good. It's like <laughs> when you see somebody's face and you're like, yeah, that's a punchable face. You're like, yeah, I could I could just walk up and punch that person. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It it's just it's so much more relatable in terms of a storyline, and they go about it in the worst possible ways. But th- at the exact same time, you know, you're kind of like, well, was it the worst possible way to go about it? Because it got the job done, and it just yeah. brings up great discussions to be had. Um, did you see the Supergirl TV show? I have. So I don't know if you remember this, but. One of my, I don't love that story overall. It's got, you know, it's got a white feminism dot TV show in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, but at the end of the first season, the villain has this, you know, mwahaha, evil, evil plan where the plan is to enslave every human on earth with mind control and force them to radically change the economy to fix global warming within three years. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching, I think we actually got a great uh, episode out of that and getting to the end of it being like, I don't know actually if I'm against this. Like, I think I should be because free will is good and all that. But, you know, when you look at like the horrible things humanity is doing to this planet, to our economy, to each other, like, I don't know, someone like that coming along and saying, I'm just going to fix it for you. I get why we're supposed to think they're the villain and I think they probably are. But but yeah, I can I can understand it. Well, then at the same time, you have to consider, like, what is freedom? What is free will? And then we already regularly take it away from a lot of people who end up being incarcerated. Uh, Many states are different, but at least, like, in Virginia, if you've committed, like, any, pretty much any type of federal crime, like, you get your right to vote taken away. And you can't vote in Virginia Mm -hmm. anymore. And you, even if it was, like, a dumb mistake you made when you were 18 and you're now, like, 35 and reformed, you can't get it back. Right. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that I often do like about those kind of villains is it feels like often they're holding up a bit of a mirror to us, you know, in the sort of like, well, if all of us go to a six, but we never really think about it, we never really think about the fact that we're already doing something that if we really think about it would make us kind of question it. The villain comes along and goes, well, what if we actually go to a seven or to an eight or to a nine? Because the thing is, you're already going to a six, so why do I bother you? You know, it's like the villain is kind of holding up a mirror to us and saying, if you're so upset about what I'm doing, why aren't you upset about what you're doing yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And so there's a lot more there that we're going to dive further into. But let me also just ask you this. What is it you think about Batman specifically? I think in DC, I mean, Batman, I think, kind of often is referred to as having the best rogues gallery. And I sometimes think that's true. But but even beyond that, like, there is... There is, I think, something particular about the Batman villains that often wind up being so relatable. Why do you think that is? I personally think it's because of the environment that they are coming from, which is Gotham City. Um, Mm. And I think that the way they designed Gotham City to be, the way... You know, people grow up there and the way their policing system works, the government works, all of that. It essentially creates a variety of extremists because you put them in the most extreme, terrible conditions. And when you do that, you're going to get extreme results. Right. Uh, So I really do think it's just the way they designed their city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's definitely a part of it. And I think it also ties in a lot with Batman's story because I think one of the other things I think that a good relatable villain should do is just kind of a little bit of a warning to ourselves of, hey, this this is the path you could find yourself on if you're not – if you kind of let yourself indulge too much in the like, oh, my God, I'm so angry at everything. I'm so hateful of everything. You know, whatever it is. And I mean, here maybe this is my my Star Wars love a little bit coming out in terms of you know the the path to the dark side. And, and one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I feel like it is so appropriate for Batman especially is because Bat like Superman's the big blue Boy Scout. You know, he's never acting at he's doing what he wants to to protect people to protect the American way. You know, big quotation marks around that. Yeah. <laughs> Batman is doing this to work through his trauma of his parents being murdered, and. A sense I often get, at least with Batman, is that 
and I think the Batman the animated series especially shows this with characters like Ace and Harley and others like that. That part of why the bat that that part of why the Batman Rogues Gallery is so relatable is because Batman himself relates so much to them. You know, like it, it strikes me that what he is seeing often is people who, like, he goes part way down a road but is willing to is able to stop. And what he's seeing is people who go even further, and so he can really relate to them. Does that kind of make sense to you? It does, but it also, like, makes me question if Batman relates so much to them, why has he not tried to reform them? Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's the same solution every single time for him. He beats them to a pulp of almost death a lot of the times, and then they end up in uh, Arkham Asylum. Right. And then they break out, and it happens all over again. Yeah, you, you kind of wonder, like, because I think, at least in some portrayals, especially the animated show that I just mentioned, you do get a sense that he does want them to be rehabilitated. And, you know, so that there's some theory, but it, but it often feels like it's kind of like a, a, a passing of the buck of, okay, I'll drop them off at Arkham. I'm sure that Hugo Strange guy is going to be totally fine with this. <laughs> He's going to reform them. And, and that's when you kind of get into the question of, like, okay, well, why isn't Bruce Wayne paying to actually like hire some actual professionals for Arkham or, or in some other way help to get the city to actually do that kind of rehabilitation and, you know, restorative justice instead of retributive justice. Yeah. And that's actually like, we might see that in the sequel because for the Batman, at least it almost felt like the whole point of the movie was for him to realize that Bruce Wayne is just as important as Batman to the city of Gotham. That's, like, what that whole point of the movie was. And I'm, like, I wonder if we'll start to see him do more things like that, of trying to go more towards restorative justice, or Mm -hmm. if we're going to continue to see more of the same. Because, in my mind, he can relate to them as much as he can, but it also seems very logical that Batman would not think of, you know, hiring more therapists that could work in Arkham Asylum and stuff like that. Yeah, it was one thing I really loved about this new movie. And again, as I said, we'll have some spoilers. We're not going to go too deep into it. We're going to do a kind of full analysis of it in a later episode. But I will spoil some things. And one of them is that it feels like the movie is leaning towards – I kind of wanted it to feel a little more explicit. But, you know, there is there is a, 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 per, a character who specifically calls out Bruce Wayne for not doing more to help the city. You know, and we get told that Thomas Wayne was trying to help the city through economic rehabilitation, things like that. So, yeah, I, I would kind of love it if 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 there is a sequel to Robert Pattinson's uh, Batman, uh, which I'm pretty sure there's going to be, that we get more of Bruce Wayne trying to use the, the financial resources he has to fix things instead of it just being Batman punching poor people. His dad wasn't even just – it wasn't just economically he was contributing. He was running for mayor. Like he was actually like right. performing <clears throat> a civic – responsibility and you know actively putting himself out there to help improve things because that's like half of gotham's problem is the fact that uh they always have a really really crappy mayor (laughs) right yeah they have a crappy it's um have you seen the wire i have not the wire is a fantastic tv show uh very uh, so many good things about it one of the things I, i love most about it you know it's about cops and criminals in baltimore uh, but mostly what it's about is about how on both sides there's incredible corruption, there's incredible problems, and there's also good people who are stuck in these horribly corrupt, terrible systems, you know? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that in a lot of ways it's not any individual person, it's the system that's the problem. Um, and it's, you know, um, and I feel like in some ways Gotham is very much like that. You know, it's not just going to be one good police officer because the whole system is fundamentally corrupt. Uh, and also, you know, I, I kind of didn't love how pro-cop this movie was in yeah. some ways, but that, that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that there's really something there to could Bruce Wayne be trying to to fix that side of thing, you know, fix the causes. And granted, this is a way in which Batman is a little bit trapped in that, you know, it's a story that was created when we had a fundamentally different sociological understanding of crime than we did today. You know, because I think today, at least for many of us who, who understand these things, like there's more of an, there's more of a view of crime is often the symptom, especially the kind of like, you know, poor people who don't have any other options signing up to be a, a henchman for a Joker or a Riddler or someone like that. That it's often about like 
they don't have any better economic options. This is all they can do. This is all the possibility they can see. Um, and that, that, and that way those kind of criminal things are more symptoms than the actual problems. So yeah, I, I think it would be really great to see a Batman that, that addresses those things more. Well, I'm curious cause I know they're going to create a penguin show on HBO max from, uh, right. Colin Farrell's pe- <clears throat> penguin. And because they kind of went with more of that, like 1920s mobster deal with the penguin, it, Mm-hmm. I wonder if we will see some of that from the henchmen, like people signing up to work with the penguin because they're in debt to somebody, a loan shark, or if right. they really had no other options but to work for him. Uh, right. That'd be a great thing for them to be able to address in that show in particular. And that's one area where I, I was about to mention the Riddler, but then I kind of pulled back on that because while that may be true in other tellings, I thought one of the most interesting things in this movie is that in this, the Riddler doesn't have henchmen who he's paying. He kind of has like, you know, his mob of insul. uh, He has his kind of mob of kind of, you know, radicalized white male, you know, incel type vigilantes. It reminded me so much about the insurrection um, and the people trying to take over the Capitol, like watching all those comments come up from his videos and seeing him like create like video content and stuff like that. The Riddler was making. Mm -hmm. It reminded me so much of that particular moment, especially because I live like right next to Washington, D.C. And Mm -hmm. we have like I have family that works there and stuff like that. And we were witnessing everything. It just reminded me so much of that. And I don't know if necessarily that moment was inspired by that um, or if they were inspired by even just other current things between, um, you know, different political supporters and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Uh, there's so much there we could dive into. I, but I want to pull back a little bit and talk about some of the specific villains, because as we said, there's, there's a lot of different ways in which we can relate to some of these villains or not. Um, <clears throat> and I think one of the ones we wanted to start with, and one of them that's very dear to your heart is Poison Ivy. Uh, tell us a little bit about Poison Ivy and kind of your feelings about that character. I love Poison Ivy so much. She has not been done justice at all until mm-hmm. the Harley Quinn show, in my opinion. Um, and what brought you, on... You don't think that uh, Uma Thurman chewing <laughs> scenery right, left, and center in <laughs> Batman and Robin was a good portrayal? No, they just never make her powerful enough um, mm-hmm. because she literally is supposed to be just like this unbelievably powerful person. And they always kind of just, like, play her down. Like, in comics and stuff like that, she's crazy powerful. Like, so OP right. compared to others. Uh, and I, Ivy is what actually brought this idea between us because I had just done a lesson with my students on eco-terrorism. Mm. Um, and I – basically what I do with them is that we watch – Batman the Animated Series, uh, the first telling of Poison Ivy, that episode. And then I kind of pull up, like, some just kind of scenes from various comic strips and stuff like that of Poison Ivy doing all of her different things. And then we talk about, you know, what it is exactly that she's trying to do. Like, what's her point? And her point is that she's an eco-terrorist. You know, she's trying to save the environment and does it by putting people in harm's way by killing people right. and corrupting them in different ways. And then we actually end it by talking about other, you know, forms of eco-terrorism. So I always throw Thanos up onto the board. Um, mm-hmm. And then we talk about how in history, when poison Ivy was created, it was kind of just like, it was during the really big Greenpeace stuff. Mm-hmm. That was around the same exact time that Poison Ivy was created. And it was like they were telling everything mm-hmm. that Greenpeace was doing in the comics by creating this new character. Um, and for those who don't know, Greenpeace was a group that got started in the, the I think, the 70s, right? Yeah, 60s <clears throat> and 70s. Yeah, and that they were doing a lot of pretty radical uh, pro-environmental stuff. And, and by no means was all of it violent. A lot of it was – they did a lot of uh, protest. You know, but, but they did things like um, having people – uh, in areas that were going to be log- logged, they had people like, you know, climb up and live in trees that were supposed to be cut down so they couldn't be cut down. And they did um, kind of some low-level um, economic, you know, uh, sabotage of companies and stuff like that, as well as a lot of great, like, protesting and education. And, um, you know, I think to a lot of us, myself included, they were doing a, a lot of pretty awesome work. Yeah. Uh, but it was definitely they... – they, they were definitely trying to disrupt the, the capitalist anti-environment machines well... instead of just, like – 
ask them to stop. They they did a lot of stuff like that, but then they even started like there's many tellings of like bombs going off in college campuses, uh, and even like intentionally uh, sinking whaling ships that mm, ultimately ended up killing you know everybody on the ship. Uh, <laughs> and that's where Greenpeace kind of turned into like that's when they're like, all right, they're terrorists. <laughs> You know, you're Agent, yeah. <clears throat> literally killing people by this point. <laughs> I, I, I'll say that. Too. I mean, I, I'm learning something because I, I I'd heard about some things like that. I had no idea that they were connected to Greenpeace, though. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Yeah. They're, they were connected to Greenpeace. By now, the organization's a little less radical, but they're definitely considered that more radical side of things. Um, and they mm-hmm. have a that really awful history from the 70s. And when all of that was happening comics are historical artifacts as things happen they create new characters and they do retellings of everything they're very progressive in that way and so you see characters like that coming up and being created and like for me i am probably like my biggest like issues and stuff like that that i support are all in the environment Uh, i worked for years as a rock climbing guide and backpacking and all of that type of stuff and so Poison Ivy was always somebody that was, like, super relatable because sometimes mm-hmm. I do just kind of want to, you know, stick it to all those big CEOs dumping chemicals all over our precious waters and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and Poison Ivy is just so cool to see because she's also just, like, this really great symbol of feminism. <laughs> Mm. Like, of being such a strong woman and being completely confident in her body and in who she is as a person and loving the environment. And especially, like, these newer iterations and as they explored the character more. So, you know, she became uh, an LGBTQIA plus, you know, <clears throat> icon by being bisexual. And she right. uh, ends up, you know truly embracing you know every type of style of clothing that she can wear truly just supporting every female that is out there and she's just this really rad woman that is very difficult to dislike because yeah i can't disagree with everything that she does it's so interesting i think to look at poison ivy especially in the the two on-screen versions we're talking about uma thurman from batman and robin versus the animated version from Harley Quinn, um, in which I, I'd say really she is as much a star of that show as Harley. It's, it's the kind of Harley Quinn oh, and yeah. Ivy show in a lot of ways. Because Uma Thurman is like the vampiest vampy femme fatale that has ever fatale a femme, you know? <laughs> and it's just like and, – and like it, it's – you know, Batman and Robin is very much this kind of like super campy, kind of gay-inspired kind <laughs> of Batman satire, which Joel Schumacher was like very clear about that. That's what he was going for in later interviews. And and, and so in that, like it, it's almost like Poison Ivy as, as kind of a drag idea of femininity, um, which you, you can love or you can hate and that's something, but – it's interesting how so everything her character does, it's to help the environment, but it's all about I have figured out how to use these chemicals to control the the hormones of men, and so it's just sex, you know, it's just sex appeal up, down, and sideways, and she looks fantastic doing it, no argument there. But like compare that to Harley Quinn, the the, the Ivy character in Harley Quinn, where as you said, I mean, she's a very sexy character, she's a very attractive character. But she's so she's not the femme fatale at all. She's really, um, I always would always describe her as kind of cottage core in a lot of ways. <laughs> she <you know>? is. <laughs> she, she she's so in and and she's not trying to play those games. She has a male partner for a lot of it, who she has genuine feelings for, even though he's kind of a dork kite, uh, man. kite man. Hell yeah! Uh, she, <laughs> she discovers real feelings for Harley. And then feels really torn between the two, at which point I kind of wish they'd explored polyamory, but that's, you know, maybe a bridge too far for that show. That's fine. Um, but yeah, how do you kind of view, because you talked about her being kind of a feminist icon, especially, how do you view those two very different approaches to her sexuality as, as part of her character? Uh, yeah, so in terms of like Uma Thurman, it's hard for me to get on board with them using her in the way that they did especially just because Mm -hmm. of the time period that movie came out in and it's kind of hard for me to be like yeah they were totally just embracing that a woman can be sexual and it's fine because she can be and black widow is a great example of that uh Mm -hmm. but 
during that particular time period, it's hard for me because I'm like, uh, were they doing it in that way? Or was she actually just like a pair of boobs for guys to stare at the whole time? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. And so it's it's very conflicting because I'm like, yeah, she can totally be like that. She can wear skimpy things and it does not matter because, you know, she's a human being and she can wear whatever she wants and be a total amazing person while doing it. Well, amazing in my sense. She's still a villain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the Harley Quinn show is just so cool because, like, she is still, you know, sexy and knows she's beautiful and awesome, but she's not – it's not overt in the same way. It's not like, hey – Look at this skimpy outfit that she's wearing. It's done in a very different way. It's done in like how powerful she is and her control of her powers. And it's done in her relationships with all the other characters and her building mm-hmm. those good relationships with everybody. Um, yeah. And it, she's like an icon of like girls supporting girls. Mm-hmm. Like any other female out there, she's just like so supportive of them. Yeah, I think in many ways, one of the best things about her character, especially in the Harley Quinn show, is, you know, the, a lot of the Harley Quinn show is about Harley getting over Joker, is about Harley getting over Joker, you know, and this is the complete rejection of the kind of like Jared Leto, isn't it so sexy how Joker and Harley are so into each other? This yeah. is really about, you know, Harley was in this horribly toxic, abusive relationship. And Poison Ivy is very much in that show, the the person who's trying so hard to pull Har- to pull Harley out of it, to help her see that. Sometimes in a very supportive way, sometimes in a very kind of kick-your-ass, tough-love way, but in a way that feels incredibly relatable. Yeah, and it's so relatable for females because I think – I can't speak for the entire female population, but we've all had some kind of toxic relationship like that, especially mm-hmm. with other males. It may have not been romantic. It may have been familial or friendship-wise, but um, it's kind of – watching the show was very – almost therapeutic for me personally uh Mm -hmm. like i was watching harley and it was almost like at times i would feel embarrassed of myself because i was like no i was like harley at one point like that too and i was like oh Mm -hmm. no i should not have been like that and then having somebody like poison ivy just being there for her and being like no we've all been there like literally all of us have had this happen to us and kind of just being there to constantly like remind her like no you are doing the right thing stay away from that person grow as a person grow as a human being and you'll be okay mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and so what do you think it is like so we believe in her her politics in a large way i think at least i certainly do i think many of us do in terms of the like we're killing the environment this is terrible what is it then that makes her a villain what is it that has her cross the line I think it's the straight up murder of other human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like the like for me that feels like the like the definitive line that they have crossed there is that they show like she kills other humans to get what she wants. Uh but then there's also depending on you know what show you're watching, what iteration she is, sometimes she'll, you know, take away that free will we were talking about and that free choice by, you know, using her pheromones to corrupt the male brain um and so it kind of just depends on what iteration and how powerful they've made her and what her power set exactly is but it's always some kind of like murdering or taking control of others Mm -hmm. yeah and and, and, again it goes back to that 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 question from before uh which i think is one of the most interesting and um i did not like the eternals movie much but even that raised it somewhat which is and I think Professor X in, in X-Men does this all the time. Even, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, yeah. you will not uh, smoke death sticks anymore. You're going to go home and rethink your choices. Like, there's a very interesting question, I think, of is it villain? If someone is making poor choices that are hurt. I, I, let me back this up a second. I think it's easy to draw a line and say mind controlling someone into no longer choosing to hurt themselves is kind of problematic. You're taking away their agency and who gets to decide what's good for them or not. But when someone is doing when someone is making choices that are hurting others, well, if our goal of restorative justice is to help get them to a point where they're not going to choose to hurt others, I can understand the idea of let's just skip the whole five years of therapy and go straight to mind control. Um, You know, and and I think that's kind of what I love about characters like that is I, I don't think it's the right thing, but it does make I have to sort of ask myself beyond just the knee jerk. No, that's wrong. 
why is that wrong? If if we if we know that people are collectively making these choices that are, you know, causing a literal existential threat to humanity and to the planet, and and uh, so is that, you know, what what are the limits and what is or is not allowed to do to force people to change? And it's the same question that you know I hate to always go to Marvel, but that's my first love. Uh, a lot of the question that they brought up, you know, every time and. Captain America's Civil War and when they talk about the government regulation of superheroes and that question is like well when do we get involved when do we force our hand and force our power on other people um and so it's it's just so cool to see that play out in terms of like villains and then also seeing it among like the heroes as well Mm -hmm. for sure yeah I also think with Poison Ivy, and I'm curious if you would agree with this, I think one other way in which she kind of goes a step beyond what most of us would, would see, like I think what most humans would think of in terms of environmentalism, but but not all, is, and I'll just talk about myself here, I think I'd be happy to admit my values of environmentalism are still fairly humanocentric in that the reason why I think protecting the environment is important there are other reasons, but it's, but particularly is because we are creating an existential threat for ourselves. We are we are coming closer and closer to you know things that are going to severely impact and you know end human life in a lot of areas of the world and make human life much more difficult and just completely oh, yeah. wreck the world as a livable habitat for humanity. And poison and, ivy thinks more of like plant life and all that as more sentient beings. Right. And her, it for her, it's, I think she'd be okay if she doesn't mind that, she, like, I in some ways I kind of feel like if, if it wasn't that global warming was thought of as bad for the planet, if the result of global warming is mass human extinction, like, Poison Ivy's kind of okay with that for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely would not disagree with you there because, you know, in the Harley Quinn show, she literally has a plant that talks. She is frank. Right. <laughs> like, like she has mm-hmm. gone to that point where, like, they literally speak to her and she understands plant life and creatures. Uh, and she definitely has taken that, like, extreme step where yeah, I'm not going to, like, totally reject the idea because we don't know everything about science. But generally, plants don't speak. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I think she would be, like, somewhat okay with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. Um, let's now shift to Catwoman because Catwoman is another villain who is not always portrayed as relatable, um, particularly in the comic books. I mean, a lot of times she just, you know, she wants the diamond because the diamond is pretty or she wants the, the money that she'll get from selling the diamond. But often there is, um, and particularly in the mo in, in both the Batman, both Cat, both Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman in, um, uh, the Tim Burton movies, and now most recently the Zoe Kravitz Catwoman, there is some element of, you know, righteousness, of she's on a quest. She has a... And, and in, in the most recent movie, it's more about reven- personal revenge. In Michelle Pfeiffer, it's somewhat personal revenge, but it's also a little bit like on behalf of all wronged women. Where do you see her falling as a villain? It just depends on how they're trying to portray Catwoman be- because... Sometimes she's a villain, but then sometimes she is like an anti-hero where she actually Mm -hmm. pairs up with the heroes a lot of times with Batman to, you know, help other individuals. And we see her more in that anti-hero role during this movie where like she definitely still had her villainous tendencies and Batman had to get her to like back off a little bit, draw her back in. But then Mm -hmm. at the same time, like she was... She was paired with him. Like, she was helping him, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, And even, like, before they met up, if I'm not mistaken, like, she was doing all that stealing, but it was to help her friend. So they never truly put her as a villain. And that could change, because, you know, Mm -hmm. she always goes back and forth. You never know with her. Yeah, like, I mean, I feel like she's very much the sort of, like, chaotic neutral, not evil in any way. Yeah. You know, she's she's out for herself, but often she's kind of a person who, like, I think one of the things that makes uh, Selena Kyle especially, like, in some ways, I find the Selena Kyle-Bruce Wayne relationship a lot more interesting than the Batman-Catwoman relationship. Yeah. Um, And have you seen the TV show Gotham? I've seen, like, parts of it, not the whole okay. show. 
because one of the things that they do with her character that I find really interesting is that in that, like, you know, young teenage Selena Kyle and young teenage Bruce Wayne connect with each other. And one of the things that comes up is this sort of idea of that part of why Bruce Wayne can be so kind of morally absolute and, you know, have this like, well, even under the worst circumstances, you should never make this choice is because he's never going to face the worst circumstances because of all of his privilege. And she's the opposite. She's the, well, I don't want to steal, but how else am I going to put food on the table? I don't want to be part of a gang, but if I'm not part of a gang that protects me, who's going to protect me? And I, I, I really like that part of the Selena Kyle character of the, you know, she's she's often engaging in criminal behavior, but it's much more out of survival and necessity than it is just like, Mwaha, I want to kill everybody or I want to steal everything. Oh, yeah, she 100 percent is. And it's uh, it's interesting because in the Batman, you see Selena for the most part. You don't necessarily right. see Catwoman. It's a lot of Selena, but then you like never see Bruce Wayne. So you get Selena and Batman, which is an interesting combo between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we usually see, you know, Catwoman, Batman, and Selena, Bruce Wayne. Uh, and it's a great point to point out the fact that like Batman will never know the worst possible circumstances. It's awful that his, you know, parents were murdered, but like he still is so unbelievably wealthy and he grew right. up with all of that money. He never grew up, you know, in those worst possible circumstances versus you know, he he has good intentions and he wants to, you know, help all these villains we're talking about, but like he's never experienced what they've experienced. And I feel like a lot of times he never listens to them about what they're experiencing. He kind of just, you know, does his job of taking them to Arkham and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, before we were talking about how, uh, you know, on the one hand, all these criminals like often turn to this because of necessity, because of what else is yeah. there to do. Not necessarily just the, 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 the villains, but they're hench people, henchmen and all that. Um, I think they're mostly masculine. I can think we can identify them as henchmen. Yeah. Um, uh, but should, maybe some more gender equality among hench workers. Um, <laughs> but 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 kind of the point being that I, I think you could look at it and go, so it is a sign of Batman's moral character, of Bruce Wayne's moral character, that he never goes that far. But I also think it's his money. You know, I think it's that he never ha- he never has to worry about putting food on the table and figuring out what will happen next. He no. He has an Alfred in a way that a lot of these others don't. And I think that's... Um, and, and I will say kind of what you were saying about Batman understanding, I, as far as I can remember, Batman, the animated series is the only show that's shown some of that, um, particularly with the episode with Ace and, but also there's a great one with Harley. Uh, I think it's called actually called Harley's bad day where it does feel yes. like he has some real empathy for them. Uh, he, he definitely has like throughout the ages, he's shown uh different empathy for them. And I feel like he, showed a little bit of empathy this movie but at the same time i was like this dude has like no empathy for riddler right now <laughs> yeah like whatsoever it felt like um mm-hmm. when well, so <sighs> let's talk about riddler because riddler is a very interesting like one of the things that i like so much about um the this movie is that catman <laughs> catman catwoman <laughs> and the riddler are put in a very interesting dichotomy where she is all about this kind of personal quest for vengeance in terms of, you know, who killed her friend and who killed her mother. And it's a little bit about not wanting others to, put, to be hurt, but it's really just about her own personal vengeance. She's much more kind of the punisher than Daredevil, Agreed. for example. Whereas Riddler, like, we haven't seen him be personally hurt by this. He has this um, sort of idea of that the corruption of the city uh, of the cops and of of the people like Bruce Wayne who who will let it happen and the politicians that that's the terrible thing and so he wants to be this kind of like warrior for justice. Um, what what do you kind of feel about the Riddler's character a- as a relatable villain? I think it's incredibly relatable. Uh, I feel like the Riddler is somebody that just like sat back and watched all of these awful and awful things happen, and he just felt so unbelievably useless. Like he couldn't do anything. And there's so many times in life where I'm just, like, sitting here and I feel so useless. Like, currently mm-hmm. with, like, the Ukraine and Russian everything happening over there, like, I have felt so so useless. Like, I feel like I can't do anything to really yeah. help. You know, like, I can donate money, but then I'm also, like, I'm a public school teacher. I also don't make tons and tons of money to donate. 
Right. Um, and so it's just like, it feels like he was born of like feeling so useless and just watching these terrible things happen, maybe like to his neighbors, maybe to himself, to everybody around him. But then he kind of saw Batman as, and he did, he saw Batman as being a light of hope of like, oh, I could do something too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's so highly intelligent that he's able to, like, mastermind this entire plot. <laughs> yeah, I, I have such mixed feelings about the Riddler character because, you know, I think you're right. I think his rage and his feelings of powerlessness and his desire to somehow reach out are very relatable. And he also, I think, very clearly represents, like, you know— to me, the Riddler is very much a stand-in of, you know, young white man who gets a hold of a machine gun and goes and mows down people at a gay pride, you know, event or yeah. a, um, a nightclub or a school, a school or whatever. Yeah. Horrific things. And I and I think, like, I found the Joker movie very hard to watch. I went up actually not even finishing it because I was so bothered by what, what to me was kind of somewhat glorifying that kind of position of sort of the angry white man with a gun and and, and fighting back. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to start that debate. Other people see it differently, and I totally understand that. I felt like this movie did something very different, though, because this movie was both showing that the pain he was feeling and the frustration was very real, but then being inc- – I, like, I didn't for a moment feel any sympathy with his methods. or oh, with no. His, <laughs> especially once it became – it was no longer directed against the corrupt people – it was everybody. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I, like I, and this will save for the review of the movie. I, I kind of just really didn't like the third act. I felt like it didn't make any sense for the Riddler character. So it's almost sort of like, I think the Riddler of the first two acts was a great character. I think the Riddler of the third act was kind of a terrible character. <laughs> but, but, but I think if we just kind of focus on those first two acts, like it, it is, you know, he's the person who's who's going further and is is using his his brain to kind of try and outsmart everybody and show off and show that he can do these things and it's it's horrible and it's terrible but i i i can't just look at him as a mustache twirler you know and to me yeah. i think this is where and i'm sorry i'm kind of saying a couple of things here and so feel free to respond to all of it. it but it's kind of one more point i think that is so important for a relatable villain i need what makes me love a relatable villain is if i look at that person and think on my worst day i could see myself going down the road that leads to that person you know and and with the Riddler, I think, especially in those first two acts, less the third act, there is some of that. You know, there is some of that, like, you know, uh, I'm going to draw an odd comparison here. And again, any Secret Service agents listening in, this is 100% hypothesis and, and <laughs> fl- flights of fancy that my brain went on when it was reported that a certain political leader from the from, who was not in power at the moment, uh, you know, who had been pretty awful about attitudes about COVID – contracted covid themselves yeah there was a part of me that kind of didn't hate the idea that he might die of covid oh no i'm gonna say i fully was okay with it (laughs) yeah i'm okay with being that terrible person like right and i feel like it's not that far like that's that's that same path you know of like well what if i wanted you know and and yeah and so i think that's why i loved a character like the riddler so much is because again first and second act third act it's very different i think but because he is, like, it's that I know I don't ever want to be that person. I know that, like, innocent people are being harmed. And, and even so, like, we should have a system of, of justice because without it, it's just chaos and vigilantism and, and, and awfulness. But I get where he's coming from. It, it really shows the dangerous power of a person behind a keyboard and a screen. Yes. You have a person so. that, like, is so angry and frustrated that their result is – and they don't show this exactly, but in my mind, the way this went was he didn't actually start by doing anything. He started by going to his computer and vlogging or typing, you know, in Reddit or whatever it is about how frustrated he is. And then all of a sudden you start getting people of a similar mind, but you're all protected by a keyboard and a screen – to start with mm-hmm. uh and it's it was really interesting and cool for me to watch this movie because it's something that i see a lot in the students right now because for a couple years they've been pr- protected by a keyboard and a screen it's a lot of smack talk over text and tiktok that results into like 
I, I'm not even exaggerating, like mass brawls that literally happened in my school. Um, mm, God. And it's quite li- like it literally is already happening and has happened. I mean, that's how the insurrection happened, happened, right? You get a bunch of similarly minded people all across the country. They're all ranting on Facebook or whatever it is. And you start going down that path of being too radical and going too far. Uh, right. And you could really see that with the Riddler and they did not glorify it for a moment. It was obvious how awful he was and they showed mm-hmm. exact i mean that was one of the coolest things about the movie and i see cool in a different way and that they really showed like what the riddler did i mean like it wasn't just like a standard killing like riddler put a statement out there right and i think you really touched on something so important because Part of what I feel like we're getting at is that there's this huge, wide range of relatable villains, you yeah. know, because you take someone like uh, Eric Killmonger in Black Panther. I am so very close to thinking he's right, you know, in terms of like, you know, arming people to fight back against racism. And I think one of the most important parts of the Black Panther movie is that by the end of the movie, Killmonger has won the the ideological discussion well so his actual method let me his actual methods aren't what black panther and wakanda is going to adopt but the idea that of like that they have to end the isolation is 100 percent what they adopt my Uh, problem with the two of them and i love black panther don't get me wrong let me start off there Mm -hmm. all right you have killmonger being that totally radical point of view you have t'challa being like no we should do what my father did and not you know go out into the world and stuff like that and help other black people. But then you have his love interest who the entire time has been saying, no, we should help people, but we shouldn't be radical. Like the whole movie has said this. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they get to the end and they're like, yeah, Killmonger's right. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, she's been saying it the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Did nobody hear her? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that's very fair. And I think there's, I think the movie at least a little bit acknowledges it because like, I, I think at the end, you know, T'Challa does specifically say, like, he helped, you know, I now realize that you were right, and so now I want you to help me with this. But you're right. It, it, there is a definite irony there of there is. it took Killmonger <laughs> to, to say it. So, yeah, I totally get that. I'm like, I get uh, that you may have needed somebody radical, but, like, also at the same time, you know, and I'm a woman, so, like, my first mindset, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, is it because she was female that you weren't listening to her voice in this? And you had to hear a male do something radical to understand it? Um, but again, I'm a female, so like so many times that literally does happen. And that probably wasn't the intention because this was a very, very progressive movie that came out. (laughs) I mean, I'm down for a comment that, um, Killmonger was mansplaining, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, better involvement in the world. I think that's one we can go with. Yeah. Uh, But, but you're pulling it back a bit. Where I was going with that was just the idea of. Like, I am still rooting for Killmonger, you know, I, and yeah. that I don't want it like his plan. But like right up to the end, I'm really close to it. I'm never rooting for the Riddler. I'm I'm more that it's more that I'm kind of there's a little bit of sympathy and there's also a little bit of I see where I see how you got there. And I wish that steps had been taken to help stop you getting there, you know. And, uh, and, and so to me, it's a very different kind of being relatable. Does, does that kind of make sense? It's relatable in that, like, it's not the same issue I can get behind, but I can see any one of us going down that path of, it might be a different issue, but like going down the path of, you know, the keyboard warrior protected by the screen, gaining the followers, and then something radical happens behind your cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his, I mean, like the actual cause, not necessarily, but I... I think especially just having seen it from all points of view and again I'm a teacher so I'm seeing it from people of all kinds of different stances I'm seeing it from people who are incredibly liberal and progressive and people who are more conservative and every single time they're in the wrong but I've Mm -hmm. seen it from all kinds of different issues that happening right where do you so so in this movie it kind of gives us as I said sort of the 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 personal vendetta versus the kind of like broader societal change. Uh, do you tend to find one of those two more relatable, or is it really just kind of depending on the character? I think societal change for me. Um, I think personally, societal change does it more for me than a personal vendetta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's just like 
I'm sure if something happened to me or even within my, my own personal vendettas, I could see myself going, you know, a Catwoman route. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also like, eh, you know, maybe stop being so bitter about it <laughs> mm-hmm. when it's a personal <laughs> vendetta. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like in a lot of ways, I, I love the TV show The Punisher because but, but I sort of feel like I disagree with the writers and that I I think the Punisher is a villain not an anti-hero in part yeah. I think it's part of it because to <laughs> me he's not trying to fix things like to me I think one of the reasons things I love about the Batman character in general is that I feel like there's often this tension between him of does he want to punish the people who killed his parents or does he want to make sure there are no more Bruce Wayne's orphaned as children and that in theory most of the time he's leaning to the second but he's tempted by the first and and so yeah i, th- I think you're right like i, I but i hmm, i don't know because i i did find myself rooting for catwoman you know like when she i feel like gets a lot more information from the bad guys and the mobsters than either bruce or gordon does and when you know you hear that tape of the horrible thing that happened to her friend who i think is implied to be her lover and i wish they just went all the way with that it, they, really the they really did they really did there, oh, I don't want to get. There, there's so much that that movie kind of got ninety percent of the way on and then left on the table, and I was like, "Just what are you trying to do here?" Um, but yeah, so I, I I think I can kind of root for both, but I think you're right in terms of the kind of like overall. I'm probably more on that side, like you, of the the, the societal change rather than just being about personal vendettas and and violence. Yeah, because most villain most villains that it's all about a personal vendetta. I'm not. I don't see myself getting behind. So, like, Iron Man 2 is, uh, if you've never seen Iron Man 2, you should, because I think it's decent. <laughs> a mm-hmm. lot of people hate on it. But the villain, his whole point is a personal vendetta against Tony Stark and what happened to his father. Right. And, like, I can never get behind that villain. I'm just like, eh, yeah, you just need to be taken down and go back to jail by this point, because... <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's not. I mean, there's a lot of problems with the second Iron Man movie, but the <laughs> lack of relatable villains, I think, is definitely one of them. Um, I'm trying to think of a another one that I, I really just do not relate to at all. I guess Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, I don't relate to that villain at all. Like, Ronan the Accuser is literally just trying mm-hmm. to, you know, kill everybody, and that's not even Vendetta. Right. He's literally just like, I'm gonna kill everybody and take over the world. Very mustache Troyly. <laughs> And I do think there's something interesting about how much do we relate to someone like like I think so, sometimes there's a, the more of someone's backstory I know, the more the easier it is for me to relate to them, you know, for obvious reasons, because now I understand more of them. Yeah. And I do think there's an interesting tension sometimes of, you know, if we had seen a movie about Ronan's world being wiped out. Yeah. Uh, and, and the suffering of his family, would we feel differently about him? You know, I think that that's, you gotta get, I still, I mean, he's a genocidal maniac. Yeah. I still think we're probably against him. But I do think there's an interesting, like, idea there of when we see someone who seems like a mustache twirler, how much of it's because we don't know their backstory? Uh, a lot of, so when I saw Captain America Civil War, like when they introduced Zemo, I was just like, oh, Zemo's just a maniac taking over and killing people. But then we got Falcon and the Winter Soldier and we started getting so much more background information about who Zemo is as a person. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I don't mind Zemo at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's also the dancing and him just being dead sexy. But yes, oh, also yeah. the, like I have the socks. suffering. <laughs> I have a mm-hmm. pair of socks that have him dancing in the club around them. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I love that. All right. Well, we've got about a good hour. There's a lot here to talk about, but we've kind of covered a lot. Is there any kind of last things about this idea of the relatable villain that you wanted to get into, especially in terms of these characters and Batman? I, I think it's something really cool that especially a lot of Pixar and Disney movies have started to do is that instead of having just like a general villain, they have actual legitimate problems and issues that they're trying to Mm -hmm. solve, you know, like turning red, it's, you know, familial between mother and daughter and, you know, growing up and such. And in Kanto, Mm -hmm. it's all of these different family dynamics. Generational Uh, trauma. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that even by the end, even the grandmother is not, um, the abuela is not, uh, a villain as much as she's a victim who's then passed on her victimization to everyone else. Exactly. And I, 
I think the most relatable villains are the ones that take that concept and they put that concept into a person. And that person re represents that type of concept. Because, um, you know, superhero films, they're always going to have some kind of big bad villain. It's not going to be, you know, the casita is falling apart because, you know, the mm -hmm. family is falling apart. That's not ever really going to be a Marvel movie or a DC movie. But putting that type of concept of, you know, generational trauma and impacting that on other people, you can make that a person. Right. And then that person is a villain and you can find out about that and you still get that kind of same concept. And it feels like, at least in the past 10 to 20 years, that's more where superhero films are going towards. And it's made the villains way more relatable. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think that's really true because I think that like, – like, I was talking about The Wire and how part of the point of The Wire is that it's these systems that are the real problem. And in kind of the same way, like – you know, there's always these jokes that you see around about, like, the best way to deal with billionaires is a guillotine and stuff like that. And, like, I'm always, like, again, that's where the villain, there's a the part of me that's like, yeah, like, you know, if you are hoarding that much wealth, like, you're an awful evil person and you're harming people. But also there's, like, even putting aside, like, again, I don't want to be killing anybody, to be absolutely clear. But also there's a sense of, like, it, it's not the individual, bill if you kill 12 billionaires, all that you get is 12 more billionaires of the people who their money goes to, you know, who yeah. are going to be just as bad. Like, the issue is the the economic system that allows for people to hoard that much wealth and exploit that many people. The The problem is the, you know, it like, sometimes you'll see the same thing. Like, the best way to fix the environment is to, like, you know, arrest the heads of the 12 biggest polluting companies. Well, no, it's not. The company is going to keep just doing what it's doing. And I, I kind of like this idea. Like, it is very satisfying to have... You know, Captain America punching Hitler is one of the most satisfying images you're ever going to see in comic books or on screen or anything. And and Hitler is a, you know, Nazism was a larger system. It was a problematic thing. And anti-Semitism in Germany was way before Hitler and continued way after Hitler. Hitler himself, though, clearly, like, one of the truly awful evil people yeah. in history. But Hitler's the exception. You know, most of the time, it's not a Hitler. It's the system. And... Yeah, I kind of like that we're getting more villains where they are also trapped in the system and they're making bad choices and so they have to be stopped. But we can also see them as victims in some way. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, thank you, Emily, so much. It's always great to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad we got to have you back for this topic. Uh, I know you've been doing some other stuff. Where can people find more of – I know you've been giving like some talks and I think you have some videos. You've also been on some of the other podcasts here on the Stranded Panda Network. Where can people find your stuff? Yeah. So I sometimes I go on animation deliberation with Zuhair Ali. So if you want to stay within the Stranded Panda Network. Uh, but there's also the 323 Network. That's literally just the numbers. Um, but that is – sports <laughs> so if you are a sports person it is absolutely fantastic my partner he runs all of that um and then within that network i run a podcast called emily sissel asks what if where i take moments in sports history and we talk about them and then i dissect it down to what if this one little part of that moment in sports history changed and how does that impact society and culture as a whole uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, so I take the concept of what if from the TV shows and the comics, but I put it in the sports world. H have you done something about what Boston is like over the last 40 years if the ball doesn't roll through Buckner's legs, or more importantly, if the wild pitch before that didn't happen? Uh, I do things uh, – well, I could do things like that, um, like the uh, Black Sox scandal. So yeah. how things in the Black Sox handle if things had gone differently and how they would have impacted, you know, gambling in the United States. Uh, I've looked at not Jesse Owens directly, but instead uh, Carl Caparty. I'm mispronouncing his last name now that I'm not thinking of it, but he was the... Uh, Jewish wrestler that actually competed before Jesse Owens. If it wasn't oh, for him, Jesse Owens never would have taken over for the Jewish runners, that type of stuff. Um, right. So interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a great. Doesn't get released as often as I would like because I live that teacher life, <laughs> which is constant. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. And the 323 network is great. Uh, and then I also I speak at comic book conventions about how you use comics in the classroom. So. Nice. I will. I most recently spoke at KatsuCon. I will 
most re- most likely be at awesome con again in washington dc i'm just waiting on final approval uh and i'm putting in my application for new york comic-con so who knows you might see me there <laughs> sounds good we'll definitely do it and i i will say on my own just plugging note i just finished the book Moneyball after watching the movie it's one of my favorite oh, like part of sports movie. history so if we ever you ever want to do an episode about that i'd be happy to come on as a guest because it's oh. such a to be such a fat, both the kind of like the economics of sports, but also the like uh, the the conflict of the, the the moment when it shifts from being a story of passed down wisdom to a story of actually paying attention to the statistics is, uh, you know, trust the data is kind of an interesting point in our world in general. So it is. Yeah, that's that, that's a topic I'd love to talk to you about. Well, you can find Emily's earlier episode about teaching with comic books, which is a great one. Uh, as well as all the other episodes of this podcast and all my other podcasts by going to theethicalpanda.com. There also you'll find our contact information, all the different ways to contact us, tell us what you love, what you agree with, what do you think of the 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 different versions of Catwoman or Poison Ivy or the Riddler or some of the other things we've talked about. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Write into us there. Uh, I'll make sure in the show notes are all the things that Emily's up to. Check all that out. And most importantly, have a great day. <laughs>